Well, if you have your Bible, open it please to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're continuing our Through the Bible study called Unravel, in which we're teaching through the Bible, trying to untangle some of the confusing parts that people often get hung up on, trying to tie together some of the loose ends and connect the dots from Old Testament to New Testament. And so we find ourselves now today in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We saw last week how David was made king of Israel, and he started out as a great king. But like all of us, David was unable to live up to the perfect law of God. And so his kingship was eventually tarnished by sin. The first 10 chapters, well, actually all the way back through 1 Samuel, starting in 1 Samuel 16 when we met David, All the way up through chapter 10, where we stopped last week of 2 Samuel, David has stayed the course, and he's lived a model life for all of us to follow. And today we look at the last half of this book, and it pains me to teach from these chapters. I always grieve when I read these chapters. They're just so gruesome and gut-wrenching to see David's downfall. But God has preserved his word for us, that it might instruct us and correct us and teach us and convict us. And so I pray that the few minutes we spend together here looking into these difficult chapters will be used by every one of us, starting with me, as a time to use God's word as a mirror in our life and see what it says to us. Starting in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, David's life goes downhill very fast. We pick up in 2 Samuel 11, 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Underline that last sentence, if you would. It's vitally important. The reason the Bible includes that statement is because it's telling us that David wasn't where he was supposed to be. Kings always went out with their military, with their troops into battle. But for some reason, we're not told why. This time, David decided to just stay home and hang out at the palace. And if he had been where he was supposed to have been, none of these tragic events that we're about to read would ever have happened. There's a lesson in there, and I don't have time to pursue that this morning, but I think you can do that on your own. I think probably most of our mothers said to us at some point during our formative years, idle hands are the devil's workshop. And that is certainly true. It's astonishing as we look into these chapters, how quickly all of this unfolds. Verse 2, and it happened one evening that David got up from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? In other words, David, she's not yours. She's someone else's wife. Now that should have been clear enough warning 
for David to stop in his tracks. But he ignored the warning, and we all know what happened next. David saw Bathsheba. He desired to have her. And because he's the king, man, his word, his word goes. Whenever he speaks, people jump to attention. They do whatever the king's bidding is. And so David sent people to Bathsheba. They took her. They brought her to David. He lay with her. Then she returned to her house. And later, she found out she was pregnant. And the Bible tells us she sends word of that to David. And David begins a massive cover-up. First, he sends for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, who is out on the battlefield where he is supposed to be. And he calls Uriah in, and he uh, does a lot of small talk with him. You know, how's the weather? How are things going out there on the battlefield? You know, everything good? The chariot's running okay? He goes through all the pointless small talk, and he's trying to butter up Uriah. And he says to him eventually, hey, listen, you've, you've earned this. You've been out on the battlefield. You've earned some time with your wife. Go home and sleep with your wife. Enjoy the evening. And David thinks if that happens, then everyone will naturally assume that the baby is Uriah's. But Uriah's response is rather astounding. And it shows us that he has more character in this moment than David does. 2 Samuel 11, verse 11. And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Now Uriah is thinking of his fellow soldiers struggling out on the battlefield. And he says, man, I am not going to allow myself this privilege, this comfort when my buddies are suffering. So he trips David up, but David is not finished. Next, we're told, chapter 11, that David tries to get Uriah drunk so that he'll go home and sleep with his wife. But that doesn't work either. And so finally, David sends Uriah back to the battlefield. But he also sends something else. He sends a letter that contains commands from David to Joab, the commander of the army. And we read these unthinkable words in 2 Samuel 11, verse 15. In the letter, David wrote, Put Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting or the hottest part of the battle, and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. And that's exactly what happened. David essentially orders Uriah's execution to try to cover up his own sin. And honestly, at this point in the story, we're left dazed. We're left wondering, is this the same David we've come to know and love since 1 Samuel chapter 16? How could it be possible that a man after God's own heart would be capable of doing something so horrible? But it should be a reminder to all of us of just how far sin can take any one of us. We must be careful not to look down our nose at David and think that we are better than him. Well, David now thinks that his problems are solved. He gets word that Uriah has been killed, just as he wanted. 
And he thinks, well, all I have to do now is marry Bathsheba and everything will be fine. Nobody will be any the wiser. They'll just assume that, uh, that we were married and then we had the baby. Verses 26 and 27. When the wife of Uriah... By the way, you notice how over and over again in this chapter, it doesn't refer to her as Bathsheba. It keeps referring to her as the wife of Uriah. And an interesting little note, talking about tying pieces together, in Matthew chapter 1, in the genealogy of Jesus, when it goes down and lists the names, Bathsheba is listed in there, but it doesn't mention her name there. Even in the New Testament, it calls her the wife of Uriah. Do you get the point? It's saying, don't forget, don't forget who she really was. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband, and when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Wow, looks like David pulled this one off. Looks like he covered up his mess and got away with it. But then we read verse 27b, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The Hebrew words beneath our English text there literally are, it was evil in the Lord's sight. Just like Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves up after they sinned, but God came calling for them, so too now David has tried to cover up his sin, but now God comes calling for him as well. And God addresses David through the prophet Nathan. And that begins in chapter 12. But before we look at how Nathan addressed David, I just want to point something out that I think is key. Throughout chapter 11, the word sent, S-E-N-T, is used over and over and over again. I've listed some of them here for you. You can look at a few of these. David sent Joab and his troops to battle, verse 1. David sent and inquired about Bathsheba, verse 3. David sent messengers and took her, verse 4. David sent word to bring Uriah to him, verse 6. David sent instructions to kill Uriah, verse 14. David sent for Bathsheba to be his wife. And it's showing us that David is the one who is calling the shots. David is the one who's running the show here. He's the one in charge. But now, in chapter 12, verse 1, God is going to do some sending of his own. Chapter 12, verse 1, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And the Bible goes on there in chapter 12 to tell us that Nathan comes to David and God speaks to him, to David, through Nathan, in the form of this story, sort of an Old Testament parable. And the story is there was a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had lots and lots of sheep and cattle, but the poor man only had one lamb. And this little lamb grew up with him and his children. It used to eat his food. It used to drink from his cup. He would hold it in his arms. It says it was like a daughter to him. Well, one day a guest came to the rich man's house, but the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own sheep and use it to prepare a meal for the guest. So he stole the poor man's sheep and killed it and prepared it for a meal for the guest. And when David hears this, he erupts. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, And David burned with anger against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Wow. He must pay for the lamb four times over. 
because he did such a thing and because he had no pity. And as David is standing there in his self-righteousness, verse 7 says, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are that man, David. And in that moment, David was confronted head-on with his sin. And if there's one huge difference we've seen between Saul and David is that when Saul was confronted with his sin, he made excuses. He blamed other people. He said it wasn't his fault. But David, when David is confronted with his sin, he melts. He falls before God begging for mercy. Why? Because David has a heart for God. Despite his failures, when it's all said and done, David wants to finish well. He wants to live his life for God. And his own sin, when he's confronted with it, just destroys him because he, know, he, he knows that he has failed his God. You read that in his words. And the God reminds David of a few things. He said, David, I'm the one who anointed you king. I'm the one who rescued you from the hand of Saul. I'm the one who has given you everything you now have. And if that wasn't enough, I would have given you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord and done what is evil in his sight? And then God pronounces judgment on David. He said, because you have struck down Uriah and because you took his wife, the sword will never depart from your house. God said, I'll raise up evil against you out of your own house and I'll take your wives and give them to your neighbor. Boy, that's chilling. And, and I understand this may seem like an overreaction. It may seem too harsh of God to do this. But we must remember what I've said a thousand times. God is God and we are not. And whatever he says is right, whether we can compute it in our mind or not. And God has promised that he will discipline his children. He will discipline those he loves, not to destroy them, but to make them aware of their sin and call them to repentance. And that's exactly what David does in the next verse. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And it's here in this encounter in chapter 12, it's here in this moment that David writes Psalm 51. That incredible psalm with those powerful words of confession that have helped so many people through the years. I'll read just a bit of it for you. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. We see the brokenness of David. See, God knows that you and I are going to sin along this journey. But because of Christ, we have an open door to come to him when we sin and make things right with him because it's all been paid for. 
Well, God answers David through the prophet in verse 13b. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. And once again, folks, we've seen this all the way through the Bible. Once again, we see the amazing grace and mercy of God. It is by his mercies that we are not consumed. You, know, you ever have days in your life when it's just you and God and in the, in the honest depths of your heart, you go, God, why have you not destroyed me yet? I bring such shame to you sometimes. God's grace and mercy is so abundant. And while David's sin is forgiven, he still has to face the consequences of his sin. And from here, the end of chapter 12, all the way through chapter 17, David's household is filled with trouble. The son born to him in Bathsheba dies. One of his other sons named Amnon rapes his sister Tamar. Then another one of his sons, Absalom, has Amnon murdered for what he did. Then Absalom goes into hiding for years, and he begins convincing people and some of the military men to come and join his side and fight against his own father, David. And eventually Absalom gathers enough men around him to go to war against David. And when David hears the news that his own son is coming to attack him, he and his men flee from Jerusalem. And it's just this sad scene that we see in this narrative. As David is leaving Jerusalem with his tail between his legs, we see just how low he has sunk from the once mighty king of Israel. Because as he and his men are going along the road, out of Israel, a man walks alongside them and he begins throwing stones at David and yelling curses at David. The Bible says one of David's men says to him, you want me to go take his head off? It's probably more like, yo boss, you want me to go take his head off? I think it was, I think it was Guido or Vinny. And this remarkable answer, David says no. No, and I'll tell you what, in any other situation, anybody who did that to a king... His life would be ended immediately. David is so broken. He's so convicted about his sin. He realizes that he deserves curses at this point in his life. And he says to his man, no, no, don't lay a finger on him because God has probably sent this man to curse me and he needs to curse me. And it's such a sad picture that symbolizes the low point that David has sunk to. You see him walking down the dirt road, and this man throwing stones at the king and cursing him. And this man follows them all the way, throwing stones and cursing. It's just this, it's just this horrible picture. Well, Absalom and his men went after David, and in chapter 18, the battle begins. And as David's troops are preparing to march out to battle against David's own son, you can imagine the turmoil in his heart. And David speaks these touching words in 2 Samuel 18, verse 5. He says to his men, deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. I mean, you can just hear the heart's cry of a loving father for his son. Well, the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim, we're told. And 
David's army crushed Absalom's army. But Absalom escapes. Now we're told earlier in these chapters that Absalom only cut his hair once a year. That says his hair was very long. You can imagine so. And when Absalom's men were defeated, he tried to ride away. And as he's riding, he goes under the the thick, low-hanging branches of a huge tree. And when he did, his hair got tangled in the branches, and Absalom was left hanging there from the tree by his hair. And Joab comes along, the commander of David's armies. Joab comes along, and he thrusts three spears through Absalom's heart while he was still alive, dangling from the tree. And then they took Absalom's body and they threw it in a great pit in the forest and they covered it with a pile of stones. When the news came to David, David has already endured so much heartache now. When the news came to him, we read these gut-wrenching words in chapter 18, verse 33. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. There's nothing worse than a parent seeing a wayward child. It rips your heart out. David is just grieving. He's at the lowest point of his life. Well, Chapters 19 and 20 give us all the details of David's long journey back to Jerusalem after this battle to reclaim the throne, and he stops another attempted uprising. In chapters 21 to 23, a lot of things happen. There's a three-year famine in the land, and then David does this strange but beautiful thing. You remember that Saul and his sons were killed on the battlefield back in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 31. And their bodies had been hung on the wall of the enemy city in disgrace. Well, David goes and retrieves the bones of Saul and Jonathan and gives them a proper burial. It's just such a touching thing. Saul was his enemy, at least from Saul's perspective. But again, we get this little glimpse into the heart of this man. And then there was another war with the Philistines, we're told, and more giants like Goliath were killed. One of them had... Uh, six fingers and six toes on each hand. Uh, Just that strange, odd breed of of, uh, people there at that time. And then David writes this long song, praising God for his goodness and his faithfulness. And that brings us to chapter 24, the last chapter of 2 Samuel. And there's something that happens here in this chapter that is such a difficult thing for us to swallow. David sent the commander of his army, Joab, to go and take a census of the people, to go and number the people. And this was really to get a count of the fighting men, not all the people, but the fighting men, because verse 9 says, 2 Samuel 24, 9, and Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But before Joab went and obeyed what David had commanded him to do, there's this moment of tension. Joab says to the king, David, why are you doing this? Why are you numbering the people? You know 
that God does not want you to do this. Joab knew it was wrong, but why? Why was it wrong? Well, between this chapter and the same account that's listed for us over in 1 Chronicles, when you put those two together, there seem to be some conflicts in the story of what happens, but they actually weave together beautifully. And it seems that David was trying to find security in the size of his army rather than trusting solely in God. When you tie these two together, that's what appears to be happening. I don't know 100% if that's what was in David's heart. But that seems to be the motive here, that maybe David has reached a point in his life where he's getting nervous now. Maybe, maybe his trust in God isn't quite as strong as it was when he was a young warrior out winning battles for the Lord. And he says, man, I, I got to know how many men I have. Maybe it was a matter of pride so that he could sit back and relax and say, we've got this. Or maybe it was a matter of fear where he was worried that he wouldn't have enough men uh, to fight off the enemy rather than simply trusting in God. Well, David realizes that what he's done is wrong. Verse 10 of chapter 24, but David's heart struck him or condemned him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And in a rather bizarre response, God says to David through the prophet Gad, I, I give you three options. You can choose the punishment that you want. You can either have a famine come into the land, or your enemies can constantly pursue you, or I can send a plague on you. Verse 14, David said, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. You understand what David's saying here? This is a powerful lesson for all of us, even today. Hey, when you've sinned, would you rather come under the judgment of men who can be ruthless and unforgiving, or would you rather come under the judgment of God, knowing that his mercies are great? The best thing you and I can ever do when we sin is to come under the mercies of God. Even in a moment when David knows that judgment is coming, he's, he's hoping he can fall into the Lord's hands because the Lord's mercies are great. And judgment did come. God sent an angel to bring a plague onto the land of Israel. And this plague begins spreading across the land. And as it was falling on Israel, the Lord intervened and stopped the angel. And he said, enough, enough, stop. And we're told that when the angel stopped, he was at the threshing floor of a man named Arona. We pick up in verse 18. And Gad, the prophet, came that day to David and said to him, go up. Build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. So David obeys. He goes up there and we're told that when Arona saw him coming, he saw the king coming his way. He ran out and he fell face down before the king and uh, showed respect to him. And he asked the logical question in verse 21. Then Arona said, why has my Lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. 
And Arona is so humbled and honored that David wants to build an altar here on his land. He says to him, you don't have to pay me anything. I'll give it all to you. You can take it for free. And again, in verse 24, we see this incredible moment of of David's character and honor for the Lord that's still there. Verse 24 says, but the king said to Arona, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. And here's the key. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Verse 25, and David built an altar to the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. After all the sin and devastation and heartache that we've seen in these chapters, I'm so glad that the book closes with hope. Not only do we see hope right then in that moment by God forgiving the sin and stopping the plague, but this event actually portrays hope for years to come, for generations to come. Because the very place where David built this altar is the exact spot where the temple of the Lord will later be built and where more offerings will take place for the sins of man. This book is filled with sin, but it ends by pointing us to atonement for sin. That's exactly what we all need, folks, because we're all sinners. And in these chapters, we see what we've seen all the way through the books of especially Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel. We see man's desperate need for a king and a savior who is greater than the greatest human king could ever be. There was a phrase repeated in the book of Judges that we talked about. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So they got a king, Saul, but he failed. And then they got David, who was great at first, but he also failed. And this is the pattern we've seen from Genesis all the way up until now. Everyone has sinned. Even the priests aren't good enough. And all these books scream to us, there must be someone greater who will come. Someone who will live up to God's perfect law. One who will provide complete atonement for our sin and rescue us from this fallen, sinful state that we cannot get ourselves out of. And on a hill just outside Jerusalem, that final atonement was made by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was there that in response to man's sin, the precious Son of God died in our place and took our sin upon himself. Everyone who calls on him by faith, who repents of their sin and turns to the Lord, will receive the forgiveness and eternal life that he offers. And all of that is possible only because of the grace and mercy of God. So let me close with these three questions that maybe will help us work through this as we leave here today. Number one, do you believe that you need the Lord's mercy? See, David cried out to the Lord for mercy when he sinned. And when he did, he found forgiveness and restoration. This was after David already knew the Lord. 
So you, if you're saved, do you still see your need for mercy? Number two, do you depend daily on the Lord's mercy? Do you remember what the Savior has done for you? Do you remember the price that was paid to purchase your salvation? Or is that old news to you now? Do you see yourself today and every day utterly dependent for your very life and breath on the Lord's mercy? Number three, finally, do you live to worship the Lord because he has shown you mercy? See, this being saved thing has become such a cop-out for people. Hey, just walk the aisle, sign a card, say a few words, you're good to go. That's missing the point of the Christian life completely. Jesus never once called a person to become a Christian. He called them to become followers. From the moment we give our life to Christ, we die to our own life. And the rest of our days on this earth should be lived in response to God's mercy and grace that he has shown to us through Christ. Do you and I live every day to bring honor and glory to God in every aspect of our life, precisely because he has shown you mercy, precisely because he has not given you what your sin deserves, and because he has given you what you could never earn. Does every part of your life shout to the world around you, the Lord is merciful? What a tough few chapters this was. I'm thankful that it ends with mercy. I'm thankful that it ends with atonement for sin. God has given us a far greater king than David could ever hope to be. One who paid the price for our sins. One who is not only our king, but is also our Savior, and our God. Do you know him today? If you don't, boy, I'd love to talk with you or anyone here and show you how in these insane times that we're living in, you can have eternal hope beyond the chaos and noise of this life. I pray that you know him. And if you don't, I pray that you will before you leave here today. Let's pray. Lord, you've told us in your word, in the book of James, that your word is like a mirror. That when we look into it, it reveals what we really look like. It shows us the dirty places on us that need to be washed, that need to be cleaned. And as we've looked at this, these, these sad details of David's downfall, for honest at all, we would have to say, I, I see myself there. Oh, maybe not the same exact details, but we see ourselves in David's failure because we know we fall short of your glory and we need your mercy. We need your grace. We need someone who can come and be our king and our savior who will never fall, who will never fail us. And we find that in Christ. I thank you for the gift of salvation and eternal life that he gave. And I pray that our lives would be an adequate reflection of our gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. 
Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart I want to see